Let's pray this morning for, before we start. God, I just come to you this morning with hands open, with heart open, asking God more than anything that you would reveal your presence to us today. That you would make yourself known in real and tangible ways. As we seek you, God, with our whole hearts, as we lift our hands to you, God, and 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 prayer and and seek your heart, God. As we struggle with the ups and downs of life, God, or, or, or maybe just lift our hands in praise because of the goodness of things in our life. Whatever it may be, God, we ask that you would make yourself known this morning through your word and through the things that we, we, we talk about this morning. I thank you, God, humbly that you have you've given me a new uh, passion for certain things in my life because of what the experiences I've had recently. And I pray, God, that, that each one of us would have that same touch of your spirit, God, in our lives in some way. We don't have to go all the way to Israel to have that happen, but, God, it could happen there as well. And so this morning as I share these things that you've laid upon my heart, I pray that you would enable us all, God, to sense you once again and to follow you and to, and to not only simply hear your words, God, but to apply them to our lives in such a way that it would change us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to see you this morning. Man, it's been the longest time I've gone without speaking in 13 years. And uh, so this is three weeks in a row, and this is the fourth week, okay? And then I'm going to be off next week because we're heading to see our kids. And then we'll start a Christmas series uh, called Yes, just to come and find out what it's all about. It's called Yes. Yes is the answer. Now, what's the question? Uh, so that's, uh, that's what we're we'll talking about. And then, and then, and I'm excited about in, in January, you're going to be doing a series uh, for the whole month of January uh, called Greater Faith that's talking about the life of a guy named Elisha. Elijah gets all the headlines, but Elisha actually had more things incredible happen in his life than any, any, almost anybody else in Scripture. And so we'll be looking at that and how uh, that works. And then I'm going to be sharing something that came out of the, something that, that I'll share with you in a minute, uh, following in February, March. Um, for most of you, most of you already know this, but if you don't, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Israel. I uh, got back just uh, two Fridays ago, was there for two weeks with a group from Northwoods Community Church and our sister church. And, and, and people keep asking me all the time, you know, Bill, how was it? Was it a good trip? And I just tell them stuff. I've got to where I just tell them, no, nah, it was horrible. You know, <laughs> nah, because, you know, yeah, it was a good trip. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, you, I don't think you can go to a place like that, if you're especially a believer, and, and not be impacted in some way. So, let me, so I want to share with you this morning the thing that impacted me the most. And you might be surprised, because I was totally surprised. Now, the first thing that impacted me when I went was I have a new passion for personal study of Scripture. Uh, and actually, actually, it's going to come out of that in February and March. I'm going to do a series called Scripture Alive, which actually came out of my wife's Facebook post. You're going like, really? Yeah, when we were in Israel, my wife now has hundreds of new friends on Facebook. Everybody wants to be her friend because when we were in Israel, she posted every day, um, at least two times a day, pictures and commentary of their trip and scriptures and stuff that goes along with it. And you're going like, how does she have time to do that? Well, see, on our bus, as we were traveling from site to site, there was Wi-Fi. And she would actually, as we were traveling from site to site, do all her little thing on her phone, you know, on her iPhone, and she was doing that and posting it all, all the time. So it was, it, was, it was like, 
right there at the moment. And so, uh, so many people became friends, and so many people said it was so impactful, they felt like they were on the journey with them. And if you want to be her friend, you can, you know, be Vicki White, you know, and she's, you know, she'll be fine to be your friend. She'll ask me who you are, and then I'll say, yeah, they're all right, they're safe. And, and if you're not safe, I don't, you know, whatever. So, uh, so anyway, that happened, and so we have this whole journey, but I'm going to do a, so the first thing that came out of was visiting what so often when we go to Israel, most people go to Israel, you, you, you visit what's called the dead stones, okay? You know what dead stones are? They're the places you go, like, they're, 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 um, they're the places that are the ruins of places. Uh, they're dead stones, and they're great. Let me tell you, man, it was fantastic going. I have taught scripture, I have taught the Bible for 35 years as a pastor, and I came away from Israel just visiting, if I'd have just done that, if I'd have just visited those places, I would have been impacted in, in great ways. And so out of that, I have this new dispassion for studying God's Word. You know, I've been doing, pastors can get away with saying, oh yeah, have you read your Bible today? Yeah, I read my Bible today. I read it for three hours. Really? Yeah, I was studying for my sermon, you know, but it wasn't necessarily personal. And one of the things that's easy to do is just you, st- you study it so much, it becomes like, you know, old hat and stuff. And so now scripture has come alive for me in ways that I would not have experienced when I got, went and saw some scripture kind of come alive and seen some of the things that happened there and how it was. And I understand some things that I don't know if I'd ever understood if I hadn't gone there and saw those things. So you'll be learning about, a lot about that here in the, the, that in February and March. But today I want to talk about the thing that, the thing that was most impactful for me. It wasn't the dead stones. It's what I call the living stones. The impact and, and, and the interaction that we had when we went. See, when I went with Northwoods, and this is what I like to do in a couple of years from now, is take a group of you guys over there. But between now and then, I think we need to start partnering with a couple of groups over there that we can have a re, uh, relationship with like Northwoods does. And it could be the same groups or other groups as well. But they have groups over there, it's a couple of church, a couple of groups that minister to the people of Palestine and Israel. And, and, and so the living stones are the people that live there, the people that are living there in the land. And, uh, and, and I encountered actually two or three groups of people, uh, two groups, but they're kind of like three different ministries. One was Seeds of Hope. Seeds of Hope is a, is a ministry that was started in Jericho. Jericho is in the West Bank. Now, oh, I forgot to show you the map. Oh, there's a map up there. Okay. See, I can't see it back there, so I don't know if there's a map. I'll look back there now. See? It's blank. So I'm going like, there's nothing up there. No, it's up here. Okay. Here is, here is the whole thing. And you see the little yellow place up there? It's Israel. And the gray part in the middle, that's, part, that's actually the West Bank. Now you look around it and you realize, man, everybody else around there is big guys. And Israel's kind of a little guy. Okay, go to the next one. Okay, this is a close-up now. And you see there at Israel... And Israel's the yellow part, and the West Bank, what used to be a part of Israel, but it's now the West Bank, it's Palestinian territory, and down here, over here is a place called the Gaza Strip, that's kind of no man's land, and then up in the top on the right, there's a Golan Heights, and that was taken by uh, Israel in, uh, during the Syrian War in 1967, and so that's all those things, and so you have all this together. Now, you look at that, and you're thinking about Israel, it's, you, you hear about Israel so much, you're thinking it's this huge, monstrous country, right? No. You know the, the widest point there from the Gaza Strip over to the Dead Sea, which is the one next to Bethlehem there? It's only 70 miles. And from the very bottom to the very top, it's only 250 miles. And the bottom is mostly desert, the southern part. Nobody much goes there. 
And so really, it's a really small country. It's not even as big as Indiana. Uh, so, I mean, I, I saw it superimposed on the state of Virginia, my home state, and I'm going like, oh my gosh, it's a little tiny place. And so this, this, this and the question is, is, why does this have such an impact? Because in Jerusalem, the center focus of all that nation, three major religious groups in the world, maybe more than that, but three particularly, the Muslims, the Christians, and the Jews, consider this holy ground. And that's why it's such a big deal. But as I went there, I began to realize, and there's this group of people in the West Bank called Palestinians, and, and then there's the Israeli group and the, the Jewish people around that as well, and, and it's not a very big place. And so as I went there, I encountered while we were there, the thing that impacted me the most was my encounter with, with these, groups, uh, these groups that are ministering to people in Christ's name. Seeds of Hope is a ministry that was started in Jericho. And Jericho is, I don't know if you, yeah, you'd see right before it says West Bank, that has got an Eraha. That's the uh, Muslim name for it. Jericho is right there. It's in the West Bank. That's one of the first places we went. And that's a place where there's this ministry called Seeds of Hope. And Seeds of Hope is a ministry started by the most unlikely person in the history of the world to start a Christian ministry. Really? You're going like, yeah, couldn't be. Yeah. Most unlikely person in the world to ever start a Christian ministry. He's a guy. It was started by a guy named Tas Sada. You've never heard of Toss Sada probably unless you went to Northwoods one time and heard him speak. And Toss is coming in the country in this coming year, and I'm hoping to have him come and speak here. Toss's career started off as a sniper for Yasser Arafat. He was also Yasser Arafat's personal chauffeur. He was an angry, bitter young man who found solace in serving the Palestinian uh, ways. And, and he actually went and killed people for for Yasser Arafat. But later on in his life, as the story goes, and I'm reading this book, a book about him right now called Once an Arafat Man. Uh, I'm reading, and, and he became a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and God radically saved him. And now what does he do? He has this ministry called Seeds of Hope that's in Jericho, this, incredibly, this incredible ministry there that's, that's ministering to Palestinian refugee children and it's like a four-story building there, and they own a couple of stories there. Well, actually, almost a whole building. And, and they have this, they, they have the best school in all of Jericho. So Jericho, the Palestinians like them because they have a really good school there. They have all this stuff going on. It's really cool. And then they're reaching out in all ways. And Toss wasn't there when I was there because, because he was off somewhere else. So I met, go to the next, next slide. I met the people that are kind of stepping in. This guy's name here with the, the, guy, the, the young, cool-looking uh, guy there, that's, uh, that's Hutter. Hutter is the, uh, the, the heir apparent to Toss. Toss is aging, had a lot of health problems recently. Hutter is, is going to be the guy that's taken over. We met him and his wife. His wife is the lady there with, with the screaming kids. Uh, she has four so far, and she's only halfway done, she said. Uh, Palestinian families have lots and lots of kids. Eight's about average. Uh, so the figs, you don't have anything on anybody or whoever else, you know. Uh, so the deal, the deal is that they have lots of kids. So uh, the, the girl's name there, th his wife's name is Stevie. Stevie's from L.A., <laughs> not lower Alabama. And it's uh, Los Angeles. She's originally from the east, West Coast. And, and she went over there to do ministry, fell in love with Hutter, and now she, she lives there in Jericho and ministers alongside of him. Great couple. You would love them. You would love them if you met them. But they're doing incredible things. I mean, they impacted me so much when I went there. And this was like on, this was like on Wednesday when we first got there on Monday night. Wednesday went there. And then on, on, uh, on Saturday, Saturday is the, you know, is the Sabbath for the Jews. 
And so on that Saturday, we went to a Messianic Jewish congregation uh, called the Hamayan Congregation in a little town called Kaf Saba, which is in Israeli territory. And, and when we went there, we encountered this. And let me get a cool picture, the next picture, next picture. There we go. This is what a worship leader looks like in a Jewish, Messianic Jewish congregation. This is a contemporary lyre. It's actually electrified lyre, you know. And uh, he has that. They had a drummer. They had a guitar player. Oh, no, they had a drummer, a bass player, and keyboards. And we had, okay, you guys, if you don't like worship, if you think worship's here as long and you have to stand, we had a two-hour worship service on Saturday there. The first hour was nothing but music. But I want to tell you, I figured this out already, that all Pentecostals must come from Jewish heritage. Because I've never seen a more free worship service in my whole life. They were up dancing, had conga lines going around the church. Uh, they, were, they, were, they, were, they had people waving flags. I mean, it was, it was crazy, you know. And it was fun, though, too, let me tell you. It was so fun. And so we went through that and had that. And then uh, Cal Rickner's pastor in Northwoods, because they're a partner, went there and he taught that day. And at the end of it, we had the most incredible experience of praying for people. They'd ask us. Uh, beforehand if we would pray for others and be available to pray for others. And so, man, it took all, our team, about half our team, we had 29 people, about half of us spent the next half an hour after the service praying for people. My wife and I prayed. And in that service, there were 20, this is a service of about 150 people, there were 20 different nationalities there in that one service. And so Vicky and I got the privilege of praying with two little ladies Elderly ladies that did not speak our language. We didn't speak theirs. And we kind of figured out that they were Russian. Because uh, that was the only word we understood. And, 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 they, and they asked us to pray. And we tried to find a translator. And there was nobody to translate at that point. There was somebody else translating somewhere else. And, and so we just simply, what we did is that we said, uh, that was about what we did. You know, We're going like, can we pray for you? And they said something to us. And then we prayed, and we figured, God, the Holy Spirit can translate. And they came, they seemed satisfied when we finished praying, so we don't know, you know, what they're, we, we, we may have prayed for anything. I don't know what we prayed for. But we had that, and then we prayed, we got to continue to pray, and we prayed for a couple others. And we prayed, the last people we prayed for was a young, we thought it was a Jewish couple, but it was just a, a, a guy who was probably in his early 20s, and who spoke pretty good English, and a girl who let it be, who turned out to be deaf. Well, you're thinking, well, how are you going to do that? Well, you know, God puts things together sometimes. My wife knows sign language. And so the problem is she has American sign language. <laughs> and they were Jewish. And so she said, well, internationally she says that the signs kind of work, but you start words spelling things, and she's spelling it in English, and they know, she knows Hebrew. So I don't know how that works. So it was a crazy time. But let me tell you, God impacted us so much because these people were so open to God's spirit. They were there worshiping freely in a land that was not... In, the, in Israel, they're not looked down upon like they are in the next church I'm going to talk about, the most impactful church. But they're not really encouraged either because Jewish people are very proud of their heritage. And so this was a, this was a Christian... They call themselves Messianic Jews, a Christian Jewish church in a town there that was mostly Jewish. And then finally, the, the church that impacted us the most, and where I want to spend our time at today looking at God's word, was where we went, okay, Saturday we go to the, to the Messianic Hamayan congregation, Sunday we go to church again. You're going like, man, you went to church a lot, didn't you? Yeah, we did. But on Sunday, we went into Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is in the West Bank. And as we went into Bethlehem, 
we went to an Arab Christian church there called Emmanuel Church. And on a Sunday morning, we go into this thing. This, okay, uh, next slide. This is the storefront there. It says Emmanuel Christian Bookstore. And you go into the door and go down to the basement, and that's where the church meets. And we didn't know what we were going to find. We go down there, and there were 250 people packed into a place about the size oh, of the center section right here. They had no problem. Yeah. Yeah, I'll hold your kid. Yeah, I'll just go ahead. You know, whatever needs to be done, you just do it. And, and we had this group, and it was the most, once again, another two-hour worship service. They, now, they weren't as, as exuberant. They didn't have any room to be exuberant in that church because they were all packed in like this. But uh, they weren't as exuberant as the Jewish church, but they were you know, praising God and singing. And we were singing songs. I could, I could almost sing the Jewish songs because the words kind of like they had like Jewish and they had the, the, actually the Hebrew on the screen. They had English on the screen. They had all this stuff. And they did the same thing in the Arab church. But the problem was is they were, I was trying to sing along with their words and I don't, can't figure out Arab at all. I mean, I don't know how to do that. So it was kind of interesting. But just to observe the people and their passion and what went on. But, you know, it was a great service, and we, we there. But after the service, after it was over with, that church, and this is a very bunch, this is people that, are, that travel an hour, hour and a half to come to that church. And they're in Bethlehem, which is 99 point something percent Arab and Muslim. And they are not looked on with any favor whatsoever. And they're there in this place. And let me tell you what was impactful was after the service, they, they invited us, they had already invited us to stay for lunch, and they took, they graciously gave us this big spread of food, and we were eating, and when it's finished up, uh, this next guy, show the next slide, this next guy is uh, the big guy here, and he ate most of the, no, he didn't eat most of the lunch, uh, he, he, he jokes about himself, about him needing to work out and stuff, but this is Pastor Nehod, he's the pastor of, of this church, I don't know how to spell Nehod, by the way, but I just made it up. on my notes. I got N-E-H-A-D. I don't know how to spell it. But Pastor Nehod. Pastor Nehod, the most impactful thing that happened to me the whole trip, and almost all of us will agree, all 29 of us that went, was what happened after lunch. After lunch, he began to share with us. And we asked him, we said, how can we encourage you in your ministry here? We know it's a difficult thing. Tell us about your ministry. And he began to tell us for the next hour about what God's doing and God's faithfulness. But first he shared this. He said, yes, we are, we are persecuted here. He said, what has happened is past August 1st, he said on social media, ISIS literally threatened us directly. They said, if all of you not only do not, pre- if you not quit preaching, preaching about Jesus, but they said, if you do not leave Bethlehem by the end of the month, we're going to kill all of you. So what not ISIS said. And then he began to share some stories about how they realized that when ISIS says something, ISIS usually does it. Especially over there, where they have access to things. And I can't share with you the stories this morning that he told us. Because you'd probably have nightmares like I did for the next three days. Of the brutality of what goes on there. But he was just sharing with us that to let us know that this threat was real. But then he began to share with us, he said, he said, let me tell you, let me tell you a scripture story. And then he began to share with us a scripture story about what God was doing and how we could stand by them. So let me share you that story this morning, and then I want to give you some conclusions that God did. Turn to a, a passage of scripture in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, in whatever form of Bible you have. And you can read it in any language you want to. I don't care. I mean, you know, we, we don't have all most of it. You know, the, the one problem we have in America is we only speak one language, Generally. 
we need to learn to speak more languages because everybody I met over there spoke at least two. Everybody. So, you know, I'm not putting this down, but I'm saying like we can learn some things from some people. Okay. In Exodus chapter 17, Pastor Neod shared this. He said, if, this is what I want you to understand about how God works. He said, this is it. He said, in this, in this chapter, he said, prior to this, we see God taking the Jewish people. And this is God, remember, who is, this is an Arab, former Muslim, now turned Christian. He said, Doc, God took the Jewish people and, and led them through the land. And they led by this guy named Moses. And Moses had come to this place, and the Israelite people had come to this place. In the first part of chapter 17, the people were grumbling. And they grumbled a whole lot all along the trip because of different things. But they were grumbling because they had no water, which is a good reason to grumble. But the issue was, is that he said, he, so, so Moses had this thing. Remember this thing he carried with him all the time? It was a staff. I don't know if it looked like this or not. I thought this was the closest I had. So he had this staff, and he would take it and use it. You remember the first time he used the staff? Then Moses used the staff. What did he do? He tossed it on the ground in front of Pharaoh, and it turned into a what? A snake. If I threw this on the ground and turned into a snake right now, you would see me run. <laughs> I would not be a person of faith who reached down and picked it up. You know, but Moses did. And then he used it throughout the book of Exodus up to this point for multiple things. You know, striking the river to turn it into blood. Uh, using it when he, the parting the Red Sea. He used it for all kinds of things. Not that Moses did it, but God. You, this was a symbol of God's power. And so in the first part of chapter 17, what happens is, is the people are complaining. So God tells him, says, bring the people, bring the elders, and strike a rock. And when you strike the rock, what is it going to do? Water's going to come out of the rock. And so uh, that happened there. And then you know what Moses did? He names the place. He names the place. And he gives it two words. And I don't have the scripture right in front of me. But he names it. And, and the two words basically mean testing and grumbling. <laughs> How would you like the place named that? Testing and grumbling. That's what the people did. Now keep that in mind in the next part of the story we're going to focus on. Beginning with chapter, verse 8, though, of chapter 17, it tells this story. This is what Pastor Nehod shared with us, and I want to share with you because there's, 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 there's things here in this story that really apply to us as well. Not as well. They apply to us. Anybody who calls upon the name of Christ, these apply to. It says this, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Amalek was a, was a guy who was actually related to the Jewish people. Amalek was, was, uh, uh, was a grandson of Esau, Jacob's brother. And Jacob, as you remember in Scripture from Genesis, was the one who became the father of the 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see this. So this was actually like her cousin fighting against him. And so he comes and it tells us, it tells us in the book of Deuteronomy how he came to him. It wasn't, he, came, he was kind of a, a sneaky kind of guy. And he led his people, the Malachites, there. And it says in, book, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says, uh, God tells Moses, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, talking about this event in, in, uh, in Exodus, how he attacked you on the way you, when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, who's, uh, those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. He's saying basically this guy, Amalek, is just kind of useless. But he's also pretty sneaky because he attacked the people at the rear of the pack who were stragglers. The weak and the infirm and those type of people. He said, that's what it does. And that's where the story starts. Then it says in verse 9, it says, So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now that sounds pretty easy, right? Who were the men he was choosing? What was their background? 
Had they had paramilitary training? No, what they had done, this is a bunch of people who up to this point had not fought a single battle. What they had done is they, had, they basically God had fought the battles for them up to this point. They were people who had been slaves. And now God wants them to, uh, uh, Moses tells Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Plus, what was Joshua's credentials? This is the first time we ever hear Joshua in all of Scripture. Not the last time. There's 200 times other that he's mentioned. But this is the first time. He says, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hands. So we meet Joshua, and these people are, are there. And, 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 and as I was sharing his story, uh, you know, uh, Pastor, Pastor Nehod was so enthusiastic about sharing his story about the Jewish people. I'm going like, yeah, those are the people that you used to fight against, right? You were probably more of the tribe of Amalek than you were of <laughs> the tribe of, uh, uh, of the Jewish people. But he was telling his story, and he says, and so we, he tells his story. And then in verse 10 he says, so Joshua did as Moses told him. And he fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur, H-U-R, went up on the top of the hill. So Israel puts together this ragtag bunch of, uh, of, uh, of soldiers, this army, led by a guy who had never led anything, but obviously had some potential. And at the same time, Moses, the leader, and a couple of his homeboys go up on top of a hill, not even anywhere near the battle. You're going like, what's the deal with that? Well, God had a plan for this. And that's the whole point of the story. God has a plan, and he wants us to follow his plan. See, the, the reality is this. And this is what I learned as I was thinking about this story, and I'll teach more in a minute. God has called us to do things in our life. Being a Christian does not mean that God just simply saves you, and you go and sit in your lazy boy and wait for things to be perfect. God calls us to do things sometimes that are difficult. And when he calls us to do things that are difficult, he wants us to do it his way. And when we do it his way, God will give us the, the victory. It may be hard. It may not be as easy as this battle because we will find out in Scripture and reading through it that, that they had other problems with these Amalekites. But in this case, God calls them to do something. And then it says this in verse 11. It says, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, it's kind of like this deal. I can imagine this, and I think from Scripture this is ad, a, accurate. He had his staff with him, and he was holding it up to God. And as long as he held his staff up, the Israelites were victorious. But what happens after you hold a staff up for very long? Come on, guys. I don't care if you do CrossFit. I mean, you know, okay? After a while, your hands are going to get tired. And it says as his arms went down, the Amalekites, Amalekites, begin, uh, Amalekites I can't even say their names, uh, began to prevail. Now, let me say something else about this. It was customary, and something else we don't sometimes know about this reading scripture, but one of the things that was customary is Jewish people generally, and I learned this by going into a Jewish congregation, generally as they pray, their hands are up to God. They reach out to God as if he, they can touch him. That's their customary way of praying. And so Moses here was lifting his hands to God, and at the same time he had the rod of God, which was, was, was symbolic of the power of God in his hands. And as long as he was lifting his hands to God and depending upon God and, and allowed upon God's power, 
He was, they, the, the people down on the playing field were victorious. But when he began to lower his hands, Amalek prevailed. Verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So he gets tired. He put, they sit him on a rock. He's still tired. Even though he's sitting on a rock, it's helpful a little bit. I can't imagine sitting on a rock, though. Can you give him a cushion, not a rock, okay? They sit him on a rock. He's holding up. And here is his two, two, two friends holding up his hands so they could be victorious. That's the picture. Now, two things here. First, let me ask you a question. The first thing that's clear from this passage is this. Who was responsible for the victory? Was it Moses? Why not? He was holding up the rod. He had the stick. No, he couldn't hold up his hands. He was, he was human. He was, even though he was a great leader in Scripture and he led the people out of the promised land, he always did it empowered by God. Moses is not the reason. God is the one who brought the victory, not Moses. It was Moses' humility and faith, his utter dependence on God in the midst of incredibly challenging circumstances that brought the victory. And what does it say? It says to me this. Folks, do not depend totally upon leaders. Leaders are frail. All of us are. And we will disappoint you if you let us. It's only when a leader humbles himself to realize that I have to depend upon God that a leader truly leads. Let me tell you something. One of the things that really struck me on this trip, that struck me through this story, is it's so easy when I live in America and have all these resources to build a church and to do all kinds of things in my own power. And I've gone through seasons of life, and I have to be, this is confessional time, okay? I've gone through seasons of life, not days, seasons of life where I'm almost prayerless. I get busy and allow everything. I'm praying with people all day. I'm, you know, I pray, yeah, you pray, I pray with this person and that person and that person. But did I reach out my hands to God personally? And I realize I'm convicted of more than anything else that God wants me and he wants all of you, all of us, to learn a dependence upon God that where we're reaching out to God in prayer every day. Because if we not, we will fail. There is nothing, there's gonna, if you haven't come to a place in your life where you're something you haven't failed at because you haven't reached out to God, you will. There'll be a time when it'll happen. Because there's so many things in life that we cannot do in our own power. The second truth I saw in there in this story as well is that these two friends stood by and lifted up his hands. And, and that, that second truth is this God brings people into our life to help us. We need each other. If you think you can do this Christian life thing on your own, you are a fool. Because God calls us to encourage one another, to pray for one another. There's a, there's, I don't know how many one another's there are in Scripture. There's a bunch. And God calls us to walk in, 
walk in fellowship with one another. And that means we don't just go to a small group and have a great time and act fake. We open our lives up to one another and we pray for one another. And we encourage one another. I mean, you know, let me tell you something. Since I got back on this trip, I've had more opportunities to pray for people than I have in the last year. Because it's become, I've become aware of it. So God calls us for that as well. And then in verse 13, it kind of brings us to a conclusion. It says, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Did Joshua do it? Nah. He wasn't skilled enough to overcome a, a major army. It was God, once again, that was doing it. But God used Joshua because God told Joshua to do it, and he told Moses to do his thing. Why was he victorious? For three reasons. No, number one, because God was with them. And how do we know that God was with them? Because they were walking in obedience to him. And because they were supporting one another. That is where God calls us to live. And at those times, victory is guaranteed. It may not be the victory that we want, but it'll be victory because it'll be what God wants us to do. When we are walking, when God is with us, and when we are walking in obedience to what he wants us to do, and when we walk with others, that's when God works in our lives. And that's what the story told me more than anything else. Now, I'm going to switch that. So PowerPoint guy, I'm going to mess you totally up right now, okay? Ignore the rest of it. What does this mean? Well, let me tell you, at the end of that story, Pastor Nehal was sharing this scripture with us. This was not a member of church service. This was after lunch, just off the cuff. He said, I want you to know this. He said, we as a people know what it means to live with fear. We as a people also know what it means to live in faith. And he says, we are holding up our hands to God daily. He said, when we got that threat from ISIS that we were going to die, he said, our first, thing was to, our first thought was to run, which is natural, right? I began to ask myself this question. If I'd have been a part of that church or what happened to Great Oaks and, everybody, and somebody threatened us as a church and said, if you show up at church next week, we're going to kill you, I wonder if we had anybody in the room. Me included. But what happened to them is they did what they normally naturally did do. And you know what they normally naturally do? When they became fearful and when things weren't going their way, they realized they can't do anything about it, they lifted their hands to God. They spent days in prayer. He said they spent 24 hours several times each week in prayer. People praying and seeking God and asking God, do you want us to leave here or, or do you want us to stay? And he said every time they prayed that everybody in unison believed they should stay. Even they knew, knew that their, their, their life was threatened. And at the end of that 30 days, you know what happened? Nothing. Now, we're going like, well, ISIS is just a bunch of wusses and they don't, you know. No, they're not. Was it because they prayed and God protected them? I don't know. But something happened. And this was in August, and now it's November. And he said, we're still living fear sometimes. But he says, this is what I want you as American Christians to do. He says, it's great, send your money. I mean, it's great. We'll, I hope we can send money to help them. But he says, that's not what we need. 
He said, we're holding our hands up in prayer and sometimes our arms get tired. So what we need you to do, we need you to be people who hold up our arms like Aaron and her did. We need you to be Aaron's and hers, to hold up our hands. And how do you do that? You put down on your prayer list. I mean, Saturday morning, yesterday morning, no, Friday morning, actually, I got up and I started praying. And I mentioned every, by name, every person that I had, can remember their name of and every believer that I could remember of in Israel. And I've continued to do that. Because I asked God, God, I can't go over there and change the mind of ISIS leaders. Or even just the everyday Muslim. Because most of the Muslims there aren't like ISIS. They're not like that way at all. But he said, that's what I need you to do. So I would ask you to do this. I'd ask you right now to make a commitment along with me to pray for the Emmanuel Church in Bethlehem. And it's spelled just like you think it is, just like it is in America. And the Hamayan Christians, H-A-Y-M-A-Y-A-N, Hamayan Christians in Kaf Sabar. You don't have to remember that. And pray for all the other churches. That's just two churches that I encountered along the way in the Seeds of Hope ministry there that is making an impact in that land. Because the next thing that after he said all those things about what we could do, you know what the next thing he said, Pastor Nehod said to me and said to all of us? He said, I want you to know something. We're not just praying for protection. We're praying for God to work through this horrible, horrible thing to bring himself glory. And he says he's doing it. He said that as evil as ISIS is, and they're evil. He said because of the brutality, what is happening is, and we see it, and he lives it there. He said we see thousands of Muslims starting to question their faith. It took that much darkness to make them question it. And they're starting, he said, I, we believe, and we see, God is, he said, God is, is leading us to believe that within the next three to four years, we're going to see an outpouring of the real, true God's spirit amongst the Muslim people. He said, many Muslims are coming to us and asking, what is this going on? Because they're, have, they're having these visions and these dreams, and they're seeing things, and they can't explain them. And it's about, always about God. And Jesus Christ, these are Muslims. And the thing is, he says, God is using this. And we're praying, as bad as it is, that God will bring to himself glory. Now, I understand clearly now what it means to pray for your enemy. (laughs) Because these people truly are their enemy directly. And we can sit around and worry about what might happen here. It could happen here. Not to the extent it's going to happen there. But how do we respond? We respond the same way the Emmanuel Church does. We lift our hands to God. And we say, God, this is what I'm going through right now. Some of you are not going through that kind of persecution, but you're going through stuff in your life that is causing you incredible pain, is causing you incredible fear, is causing you, it could be a marriage falling apart, it could be, an illness, it could be financial, it could be, I mean, you know, uncertainty about jobs. Whatever it is, 
And when you're fearful, instead of being fearful, what you need to do is lift your hands to God and learn to depend upon him. Because God is the one who can be the solution to your problem. He may lead you through a a time of testing and trials, but he will lead you. That's what it says here in Scripture. I believe it more than ever before. That's where we need to be. I mean, we have all kind of cool plans about doing all kind of stuff like Americans do. We can engineer anything, right? But the reality is, there are some things we can't do anything about. And one of them is the human heart. But God can do something about it. I really believe that. So, so this morning... I want us to do that. So we're going to end our service this morning. We're going to end our service, and you don't have to put any more scripture up or anything like that. You just take the PowerPoint down and ignore it. I got some more stuff. I decided not to use it. Um, I just want to share with you this. We're going to end in a little different way. We're going to have communion, and we're doing communion in a different way this morning, too. We got four tables, one here, one here, two at the back. And I'm going to ask you in just a few moments, uh, as Nate plays some, some background music, some acoustic music for us this morning. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, you are going to go to the table and partake of it. Nobody's going to hand it to you, okay? You're going to get up out of your seat, and you're going to find your way to the four quarters. We're not going to do any kind of like, oh, you go here, you go here. I figure you guys are big guys, and you can figure out how to go to four tables. And you get there, and you get your wafer, you get your cup, and you can either take of it there and pray in that area and do whatever, or you can go back to your seat, whatever you want to do. It's up to you. But I was reminded when we, when we were at the garden tomb, uh, we, we actually partook of the Lord's Supper there. And I got to lead communion there and part of it there. And, and, and for some reason, you know, I didn't know I was going to do it until right before I got there. And I was praying to God and I said, God, give me a verse that I could share with the folks here, the 29 folks in our group. And, and, and I always go back to 1 Corinthians 11, which is about the Lord's Supper. But 1 Corinthians 10 came to mind. I'm going like, Really? And I read this, and it says this. When we drink from the cup, we ask God to bless. Isn't that sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we eat the bread, we break. Isn't that sharing in the body of Christ? By sharing in the same loaf of bread, we become one body, even though there are many of us. As I was sitting there in Israel, I'd already visited the Hamayan congregation. I'd already visited the Emmanuel congregations, the Seeds of Hope, and I thought about us here. I thought, you know... When we partake of the loaf, we're not just doing it for us. We, we're so focused on personal stuff. It's partaking and saying, I am part of us. So this morning as you partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about the greater body of Christ that you're a part of. I want you to spend time praying now, this morning, about Christians around the world who are persecuted. And who need you to lift up, need you to be Aaron and hers. And lift up your hands. And lift up their hands. And maybe this morning, you are going through something in your life. And when you're going through something in your life, it's hard for you to think about other people. And so what you need to do is unload that burden. And so I'm going to have some people, myself over here. Dan Baker's going to be over here. Some other people will be around the building in some locations. Stephen Mary Zayner, I think, is back there. Uh, Carl, you're available for that as well. He'll be back over here in this corner. And if you want to pray with somebody, just come to him and say, hey, I'd like you to pray about this, and we'll pray with you. Because I believe we need to lift up and encourage each other in prayer. So as you go to the communion tables and do that, after you've done that, then what you can do is you can come to the, while we're playing, the music's being played, you can come and you can, and you can have somebody pray with you.
And then we're going to sing a closing song. And then we'll close up the service. But if you still continue to want to pray with somebody, we'll still remain here for a while afterwards as well. Okay? Let's pray right now. God, I thank you so much for your incredible love. I thank you for gathering, helping in, in my own heart and mind and the people that went, I know as well as in sharing with them how you have worked in our lives, God, and how you have changed us. And God, what you have changed us is not to become more prideful people, become more humble people, to realize, God, we need you. We need you. As the old hymn says, we need you every hour. And so often, God, we do things in our own power. I just confess my own sin. But so often doing things in my own power. So God, I want to see, I want to see you at work. And I know the only way you'll be at work is when we connect with you and, and find ourselves in obedience to what you're directing us to do. And in doing so, God, as we join other people together, God, you can use us to do things that we have never even imagined. You may be, God can use us to lift up the hands of the people over in Israel and Palestine and other places in the world that are on the front lines of the battle for the hearts and the minds of people. And God, God what you can do for us is you can allow, you use us to encourage them. And in doing so, God, that they will stay the course and God eventually will see the victory. Thank you, God, for your incredible love. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.